Welcome to This Wild Life, a conservation podcast that brings you up to date with frontline conservation efforts from around the world. Expect stories of wild adventures and get to know the characters who are dedicating their lives to protect our beautiful planet. We're here to bring the wild to you. A warm hello and welcome to episode six of the podcast. And this time we're going to be diving, quite literally, into cave exploration and into a slightly unique marine conservation organisation. Now, before we chat about those topics in more detail, I'm delighted to introduce our guest today, Christine Grossart, a record-breaking cave diver and key member of Ghost Fishing UK. So before I get into the background in more detail, Christine, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. No problem. And before I hand over to you, I will give a little bit about your background. So Christine is a record-breaking cave diver and has spent months on a pioneering expedition to survey and explore an underwater cave system in Croatia. The project is still ongoing and Christine, alongside her team of other world-class cave divers, aim to continue to map the cave and provide the local people with data regarding the geology of the area. Cave diving is an incredibly dangerous type of exploration and one small mistake could quite frankly cost you your life. Christine has also utilised her skills outside of cave diving and is instrumental at Ghost Fishing UK, an organisation whereby a team of volunteer scuba divers use techniques and equipment to remove abandoned fishing nets from the UK coastal waters. This is sometimes treacherous work, but the team of divers work tirelessly to remove these nets and save countless species from seals to spider crabs. So today we're going to talk both about the underwater cave exploration that Christine has been doing and also her work with Ghost Fishing UK. And before we talk about both of those topics, um, could you perhaps give us an overview of your background and story? Yeah, so it's kind of um, it's kind of a weird thing, really, for, for people to get into it. It's quite a niche um, activity. You know, if you say to people, oh, you know, you, you're, you go caving and, and you go cave diving, they sort of pull a face and they don't really know what you mean. So it's kind of a, it is a very niche activity. Um, I got into it through my family, really. Uh, my uncle was a caver um, in his youth when he was at university, uh, Nottingham University um, Caving Club. And... By you know, so I spent all his weekends in in a caving region, the Mendips, which is where I, where I live now. So in order to see him, basically, my mother would sort of migrate towards the Mendips, and in order for me to see her, I'd head to you know. So we all got kind of ended up in this in this kind of caving region. So so you you get to meet cavers, you get to meet cave divers, and hang out with them. Um, so that's really how I got into it. It was kind of a family affair, I think, is is the the, the best way of putting it. It doesn't have to be. It's just that was the way it was for me, basically. Oh, okay. So it's definitely, you know, you've got bloodlines um, in caving. And this leads us on to your pioneering project in Croatia. And I must add, there's been a magnificent documentary made on the expedition, which I will be signposting people to. But perhaps you could paint a picture of the sheer magnitude of this project and why it's so special. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of, um, I, I was talking to a friend of mine who's also a pretty good cave diver. He's got a lot of expeditions going on himself. And and he said to me, he said, you know, you're, you're sitting on a pot of gold there. And, I, and that kind of summed it up for me. Really. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, cave diving 
is 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 obviously um, it comes with its risks. Uh, mm-hmm. Every sport comes with its risks. Yeah. The, the problem with cave diving is um, the risks are pretty final. Um, it's not you know yes you could break your leg beyond a, a flooded section of cave passage and have a nightmare getting out. But but it basically if something goes on wrong underwater you either survive it or you don't. It is pretty pretty um you know black and white basically yeah. um because you're in an overhead environment so rather than, than ordinary scuba diving where when you've had enough you just come to the surface mm. with cave diving you can't do that um, there's only one way in and one way out yeah you've got a roof over your head so uh, and you're underwater so you dive on the way in you dive on the way out and we follow something called line so we put mm. a piece of string basically like a trail of breadcrumbs you put a piece of string into the water to follow that on the way in and on the way out because if you lose your way you don't have the time um to, to fix it basically so so the guideline is, is really important yeah so when you're exploring um new cave passage uh, underwater which is what, what we aim to do um you're literally going into into you know more people have been to the moon territory you know literally nobody has ever been there before so what you're doing is you're what we call laying line okay so you're the first person to ever sort of go there and to do that but put your guideline in as well so so Croatia is a, a huge uh, thing for us. We went on a, a recce trip, basically, a reconnaissance trip, just to have a look at the caves over there. And we came across this particular one called Izbola Chanka. And um, we didn't know anything about it. We didn't have any background. So we did a little bit of research. And it transpired that the previous explorer, um, a guy called Frank Vassa, he hadn't been there for 20 years. Wow. And um, access had been a bit of a problem. But we had we had government permits to, to dive all the caves. So... I phoned him up and I said, look, you know, um, are you intending to go back there? And he's like, no, no, you crack off. So, <laughs> so he was absolutely fine with it. He said, look, I left the line on going in, in the second you know, yeah. flooded bit of passage. It's still going. It's wide open. Off you go. And it's just turned into this mammoth um, expedition. You know, it's gone from being normal sort of cave diving scuba cylinders to to rebreathers to using scooters sort of um dive propulsion vehicles you know bigger team and and we've we've explored over a kilometer of, of new cave in here so wow, it's it's okay. really really going places and um of course it's difficult because it's not we don't live there you know we don't yeah live in Croatia. it's not our country so the logistics of getting everything over there first of all we were flying and shipping our gear but now we're having to drive <laughs> so big a car <laughs> so yeah it's grown arms and legs but yeah it is it's every like i said you know it's every cave diver's dream to find something like that and um yeah to be to be pushing on with that every year is is just fantastic you know that's uh that's pretty much what i that's my priority every year you know everything is is headed towards you know that that project every year wow that's incredible and it's obviously a huge huge project and the footage that i've seen of it certainly shows how inhospitable it is and that really humans are not designed (laughs) to be in those environments and you say that more people have been to the moon than in cave systems like this and the dangers are ever present so what keeps you coming back for more it's just pure curiosity i mean it would be easy i mean i've, I've explored quite a few a few caves sort of in france and, yeah. and croatia um and it's very easy to say yeah i've got a bit of this planet i can call my own and leave it at that but honestly it's it's like a drug you just want more and more um you know just because mm. you found one it doesn't mean you want to find another and another um and it's just wanting to know you know this this cave is actually quite beautiful it's 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 not like it's um, some dirt hole you know like that we have in the uk um, <laughs> it's really cool. so you can't help but want to know what's around the next corner and i think for me i, I just want to keep going until i'm no longer physically or, or mentally capable you know that it will it will get to a point where i've yeah. had enough but but not yet <laughs> mm, absolutely and i mean in terms of what it's like 
to be in an underwater cave system. You you mentioned the one in Croatia, the cave is beautiful, but what is it like to be down there and, and so enclosed and in just such an alien world? What do you see and how how narrow is it? It depends on the cave system. Um, you know, some yeah. are really quite small, okay. quite nasty, and, mm. and there's a reason why no one's gone back. Um, <laughs> you know, no, the one is colossal. I mean, it's absolutely huge. The, the first dive that you go to, right from the surface, you're diving straight from daylight. Very, yeah. very short, shallow, flooded section of passage, but it's it's quite comfortable. You can move around, you can carry lots of stuff through. Mm. Uh, and then you surface in big sort of lakes, wow. sort of partially okay. flooded passage, but the roof is what, you know, sort of 15, 20 metres high, you know, easily 30 meters, absolutely huge, just cathedral dimensions. And then we carry on caving through these lakes. And then we go up into this big sort of boulder chamber, which is quite dry and quite hot um, for carrying. And then we carry all our stuff through there. It's about 400 meters in a straight line um, to carry all this kit. But of course, it's not, not a straight line. It, it sort of goes up and down. And um, But there's no horrible crawling or anything like that. Like I say, we're, we're really, really lucky that this is such a, a great system. Um, it's time consuming but not difficult in any way and, and i think you know that the second sump that we've been exploring that that flooded section of passage it, it does go deep it, it goes to about 50 meters deep which is enough in very very cold water um yeah it, i mean we i've laid the line mostly sort of on the left hand side wall because i can't see the right wall it's that far away you know i mean this, this place is absolutely right. huge. i've never seen the roof um so <laughs> surveying is quite difficult because we need to we need to kind of know the size of the place so yeah i mean every, every year there's, there's questions unanswered um you know you run out of time and you want to go back and, and do some more so um but ultimately the, this um cave that the water is used for the, for hydropower and, and it's used for drinking water so um the villagers and the local, the local community they want to know where, where the water comes from as well you know all mm. they know is that water comes out of this cave and they drink from it they yeah. they don't know where it's where it's from the source so we can provide mm. them with that information and that's a really interesting point isn't it you know not only is this your own expedition and stretching the limit of human skill and the equipment that you're using but also it's an extremely valuable exercise for local communities to give them a really good overview of I, I suppose the the geology of the area. The geology and the hydrology I mean the, the locals are super keen for us to keep going with this they're very yeah. very supportive mm. they want that information mm. um, you know they, they have had they don't know where their water is coming from they just know that it's coming out of there and it's fairly drinkable that's it they, they don't have any other information so we come out and give them all the survey data uh, and in return, they give us the um, the water level data as well. So we can have a good idea uh, when, you know, when the mm. water is going to be cloudy, when it's not going to be so, so great, when it's going to be in flood. Yeah. Uh, so they give us that information to make sure that we don't have a wasted journey. Um, so they're, they're really good. Oh, OK, so it's a completely reciprocal effort. The locals giving you an idea about water visibility and you provide them with the data that you've you've drawn from the cave. Now, I have a couple of questions about this. Firstly, how long do you spend in the cave system per dive? And and to clarify, you also talk about doing cave diving on the flooded passages, but also mentioned dry caving. So I'm envisaging it's a little bit of both on, on land and in the water. Both. And having a background as a dry caver is, is really, really important. You As soon as you get out of the water, you go back into dry caving mode again. So you, right, you need okay. to be a caver yeah. um, as well. So it is the two disciplines, being a diver and a caver, definitely complement each other. You have to be able to do both. Um, so, yeah, it's a little bit up and down, up and down. And, and this system, um, when we first started diving the, the second sump, it was going deeper and deeper. It was getting longer and longer. Uh, it was cold, you know, sort of six or seven degrees. 
And we were spending three hours in there because it just wasn't surfacing. It was just carrying on and carrying on. Of course, we don't know what's around the next corner. No one's ever been there. So so we had no clue what it was going to go on for. And, and mentally, I was sort of thinking, you know, I'm not sure I can do more than three hours in this in this cold water. It was just getting silly. The decompression was getting longer and longer. Um, and thank goodness, last year, it, it surfaced almost immediately. Just around the next corner, it just went straight yeah. up to airspace. Um, nice, big, big stomping passage. Um so now we've worked out that you can actually cross that sump from, from dry land to dry land. Um, if you go fast enough on the scooter, you can do it without doing decompression. So, mm, okay. <laughs> so once you're in the way, you just, um, you know, it's a big, big relief. Oh, that's super interesting. And for our wonderful non-cave diving listeners, and there could be a few out there, could you perhaps explain what you mean by sump, just so everyone's on the same page? Um, in cave diving terms, it's basically a flooded bit of cave passage. So you've got you've got the dry cave passage, you know, with your walls and your roof and everything, a three dimensional space. But if that's full of water, uh, it usually means that it's still still under formation. Basically, it's like looking down down the, the end of a hose pipe when it's turned on, you know. So that water is still flowing through that cave passage okay. and still forming that cave passage. So essentially, it's where okay. the water meets the roof. Um, so you're now the cave is dipped under the water table, if you like. So you're diving in a in a, in a tube, a, a rock tube that is yeah. full of water. Yeah. Uh, basically then we call that a sump um a bit like a, 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 a sump on a car you know it's just a, a tray that's full of water it's not very <laughs> so yeah we, we call it a sump um so basically a flooded section of cave passage for a sump and everything else is is just you know dry cave okay and decompression i'm i'm going to embarrass myself here and uh i'm a diver but i really don't think i can do this definition any justice on the spot <laughs> a certain amount of time breathing certain gases at a certain depth without having to um, do any um, what we call stops basically on the way up so in theory as long as you can you manage your your ascent rate obviously coming up quickly is not great because as you as you descend you know bubbles form in your bloodstream that's fine every you know every diver has bubbles forming um, that that's normal and when you come back up you need to come up slowly enough to keep those bubbles at a manageable small size if they get too big they can lodge in, in things like joints and, and, and in your lungs and, and in your heart and places like that, which is not good, actually. It causes you yeah. a serious injury. Um, in the worst case scenario, it can kill you. So the speed that you come up is very, very important. But there comes a time where you spend a certain period of time um, at a certain depth where you can't just come up, even if you manage your ascent rate, you, you can't just come up. You do need to stop in order to shrink those bubbles and manage the size of those bubbles until you basically absorb them into, into your bloodstream, exhale them out of your lungs. Then you can come up to the next next uh, stop. So you can come up a little bit shallower and do the same again, come up a bit shallower and do the same again. So um, it basically means that you spend longer in the water um, because your, your ascent from, from your deepest depth is now take, gonna take a lot longer because you have to manage these bubbles to stop them hurting you, um, basically. So the, the longer you spend and the deeper you, you, you spend at that depth, um, then, you know, the longer you have to spend decompressing, basically getting rid of the harmful gases. It's usually nitrogen, um, getting rid of those mm. harmful gases in your bloodstream. Mm. And I think most people at home may have heard of decompression sickness as the bends. And I think this further highlights the fact that humans really are not built. <laughs> for this environment to say the least and the danger is ever apparent and before we go on to talk about ghost fishing uk which i will get on to i've i've got to ask have you ever had any hairy moments in your career as a cave diver um i'd say hairy moments i've had a few things where i thought okay this is serious you you need to sort this out but it's not something that, that mm. you haven't trained for i think if you if you have a hairy moment it's usually because you haven't trained for it 
Um, and you really do need to train mm. for every eventuality in in cave diving. Um, you can't have any surprises. You know that that's the thing with it. It's like you say, it's fairly final if you get it wrong. You don't get a second chance. You don't get a second chance at it. So. Yeah, I mean, in this particular cave in 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 the Chanka, I had a, a fairly new rebreather. Well, not new; it was new to me. Um, the rebreather had probably done more dives than I had, and um, um, it was pushing too much oxygen into the into the breathing loop. Now, oxygen mm. is actually poisonous at depths. You can breathe pure oxygen down to six meters, and you shouldn't breathe, breathe it any deeper than that. Um, anything deeper than is, is slightly more diluted um, gas. It has oxygen in it, but but not 100%. The problem was my rebreather was, was pushing 100% oxygen into the loop just randomly right. at 50 metres depth, which mm. is pretty serious. Doing everything I can, could to dilute mm. this gas, but I knew eventually I'd run out of the, the gas that I was using to dilute it with. Um, so eventually I just had to bail out, which means come off the rebreather, which is a, a closed circuit loop of, of breathing gas, so you can breathe it fairly indefinitely, um, and come off into good old open circuit, which is fine. That's what I train for, and that's what I, I carry it for. You know, if something goes wrong with your rebreather, you get off it, you, you go on to open circuit gas. But doing it for real um, in a cave or a part of a cave that nobody's ever been to, <laughs> at 50 meters depth, in six degrees of water, and then you've got to do a decompression as well. You know, that was quite a big learning curve. I'd only been diving the rebreather a year at that point, so um, quite a big learning curve. Um, it it's it's definitely made me. Um, a better diver because that's kind of your that really is your worst case scenario yeah. there that that's that's as bad as it could ever get and i trained for it so it was a little bit scary you're thinking oh man this is the worst thing that could, that could possibly happen and it just did now you now you've got to manage it for real it's not a, an exercise this is for real you do actually have to get this right <laughs> um so it was a long way home um, but i had a really good good team with me i had my partner with me he's a very experienced diver and he, he was good as gold so i was carrying a camera as well so the first thing i did was threw the camera at him <laughs> i don't need it please i've got other things about right now <laughs> he's got like buckle i was just like tapping going don't need that don't need that empty bottle don't need that you know and poor, poor rich he came out of this came out of this sump surface with all my junk all over it <laughs> but um I mean, need a good team around you. So when it goes wrong, they're they're all over you, and and they they know to look after you. So yeah. that was fine. Um, but yeah, that was that was quite a scary moment. Your heart does yeah. pick up pick up pace when that happens. You're like, oh man, this. You you do that have that kind of little little out of body experience where you think, God, is this actually happening for real? Yeah. It's like, yeah, it really is. You really need to deal with this. It's it's not a nice place to be in. But once you've been through it, um, the next time something goes wrong, it's it's much less mm. of a um, a drama. It's mm. like, oh, here we go again. You know yeah so um mm, well there we go welcome to the world of cave diving <laughs> and i think myself coming from a background of psychology it really shows the level of cognitive capability needed to be a cave diver and how you're often teetering on the edge of cognitive overload and having to stay on the right side of it for for survival really now, moving away from cave diving exploration and into the world of marine conservation, something that still very much utilises your cave diving skills. So let's chat about ghost fishing, an organisation that aims to remove abandoned fishing gear from our UK waters. And it's not machinery that retrieves it. It's a team of volunteer divers that use a range of diving equipment to work together to bring fishing gear up to the surface in sometimes challenging conditions. So could you give us an idea of how this organisation came about and your involvement? So, um, I mean, as well as cave diving, I, I do actually like diving mm. in the sea. I don't do enough of it, um, but I, I, I do like diving in the sea. My mother was a, a, a sea diver and, and she's, she enjoyed looking at the fish and all the rest of it. So I, I do enjoy it. I just didn't really have a, um, a good enough reason to do it 
very much, basically. Um, wreck diving doesn't really float my boat, um, but conservation definitely does. And I, I sort of think if, you, if you're going to dive in the sea or if you're going to do anything in the sea and, and mm. use it as your, your playground, mm. you should look after it. You know, you, you should look after it and, um, you know, if you see litter, pick it up. And um, it was when partner actually got involved with um, an organisation called Ghost Fishing. It was set up originally by, by a Dutch guy uh, over in the Netherlands. Um, he went on a, a trip with them out in Croatia, um, bizarrely, and they were cleaning up a wreck called the um, SS Argo, which is a lovely, lovely big wreck, 50 metres depth, and had a great big trawling net all over it. And they, and they cleaned up this huge trawling net. Yeah. And Rich came back and said, oh, that was really good fun. You know, I really enjoyed that. And I and I started to wag my tail. I was like, this is the sort of thing I could really, <laughs> I could really get into. Can't we come from the UK? Um, you know, because I've done beach cleans and stuff like that, but never really got got going with more than a day here and a day there. You know, we weren't doing it as an organisation. We were just, just doing beach cleans. So um, we got the Dutch guys over um, to the UK. We got half a dozen of them over, half a dozen of, of UK sort of hand-picked divers that, that we knew and, and trusted. They were very good in the water. So we, we got them all together and we basically... Um, learned how to remove these these nets and pots and we did this up in in scotland um up in a place called scapa flow because you you live and operate from from a from one boat called a liverboard and um the currents are fairly benign so you can dive all day on the same site you, you know you're not controlled by by the by the slack water or anything like that you can dive all day and there's plenty of lost fishing gear up there you know plenty of lost fishing gear that needed recovering um so we did that for a couple of years and the team sort of grew and grew and then eventually we sort of got to a stage where we're like, right, we, are we going to do this properly or are we just going to carry on as a, a group of mates? And I think the, the cat was already out of the bag, really. We were already getting people sort of asking to join. How do they join? How do they get to do this? And it really struck a chord with a lot of, of scuba divers in the UK. They were desperate to do something and give something back. And there was nothing really in existence that offered that opportunity to actually actively clean up and, and see that you'd made a difference. So we were just overwhelmed. I mean, we were dated. Um, so we set it up as a, a registered charity, which we are now. Um, that comes with, with its own problems because we are volunteers. <laughs> so <laughs> the paperwork and, the, and the, the banking and all the rest of it is all done by volunteers. And, and it does turn into a bit of a full-time job. But basically now we are established as a, yeah. a charity of volunteer scuba divers who clean up uh, lost or abandoned fishing gear known as ghost gear. So what that does is when, you know, it's not lost deliberately because this stuff is expensive, right? It's expensive for, for fishermen to lose. But when it gets lost, it just keeps on working. It carries on fishing. You know, it doesn't stop being a fishing net just because it's been lost. It carries on fishing. And the problem is it, it catches, first of all, you know, small things such as crabs, maybe, you know, um, a few little fish. But that rotting carcass then attracts bigger right, and bigger okay. animals, you know, and you get seals oh, wrapped in nets, you'll get dolphin yes. nets. So, you know, it's, it's quite hard to kind of sell sell a, a dying spider crab to the public. You know, they kind of quite hard to engage them in that. But if you say, look, you know, that seal died and then all yeah. of a sudden they pay attention. It's like, well, that's not fair. You know, it's not fair. So we we, we try and work with the fishing community. You know, we, we're not anti-fishing at all. Um, we just know that it's a problem that we can maybe do something about. Um and we ask them for information when they when they've lost their nets and stuff like that. And quite often, if they've lost lost pots, you know, we'll give them back to them because we can't dispose of them. They're they're not recyclable. So, um, so that's pretty much what we do. You know, we we just go around as a volunteer group cleaning up cleaning up fishing trash basically from the ocean. Mm, that's really interesting. And I think 
is what's really poignant is the fact that you're not against fishing, but working in collaboration with the local fishermen to ensure that they have, if they have lost fishing gear, they're retrieved and not end up causing endless harm to the environment. So you mentioned the species there. What what species have you seen tangled in these nets? You actually find a spider crabs, and, and that's a real shame because, all right, they're ten a penny, there's plenty of them, but... Um, they die a pretty horrible death and of course the smell will attract other animals and it's just this this ever you know ever repeating cycle um but of course they've got um you know sort of they're covered in joints and gnarly sort of snaggy bits so they get snagged really really easily and they're in there and they they don't get to feed properly to breed properly so eventually they die and just attract more and more and then feed off each other it's really a horrible horrible situation and as you said, the species then get attracted to decaying spider crabs. And I've seen photos on the, on the internet of bigger species, such as small sharks, in the nets as well. And it really highlights we do have a lot of diversity in our UK waters. And for our UK listeners, I'm often highlighting stories from abroad. But we also have an incredible array of species right on our doorstep. We are extremely lucky. And I think a lot of people are very surprised when you say, hey, look at this beautiful jellyfish. They're like, wow, is that in the UK? Or you say, hey, look at this. <laughs> We, we, we do have a huge amount of diversity in the UK. Yeah, We've got absolutely. a lot of amazing species. You know, we have turtles. We have, we have um, you know, minke whales down the south yeah. coast. We have orcas up in Orkney. Um, you know, we have the most exquisite things like um, jewel, jewel anemones is the word I'm looking for. Um, loads of new, you know, beautiful little, little critters. And the great thing about, about UK diving is if the, vis isn't, if the visibility isn't that great, yeah. Um, just get closer to the thing you're looking at and you'll see lots of small things that are also very, very beautiful. And it's, you know, every dive is, is, is worth doing. Um, you know, we've got, we've got very, very exquisite. We're an island surrounded by, by ocean and we're also a huge, huge um, fishing community all over the UK. So um, divers really are the eyes and ears of the seabed. Um, we know what's going on down there. We're the only ones that really know what's going on down there. Um, so, you know, we see the impact of, of everything from dredging um, to fishing to, to pollution, everything. You know, we, we, we know what's going on. Um, and what's interesting is that you get this thing called a shifting baseline. Um, and my other half um, talked about this, um, really, because his father was a diver. My mother was a diver as well. And, and there's a place down the south coast called, called Swanage Pier. And he, when he, when Rich started diving, he, mm. he said to his dad, oh, I, w I went diving down on Spanish Pier. And he said, oh, did you did you see this? Did you see this? Did you see this, Ras? Did you see this animal? And Rich was like, well, no, but I saw this. <laughs> but I saw this and I saw So it was interesting that anecdotal um, kind of evidence, if you like, that his dad had said was very different to what he was seeing. Um, mm. So if you're able to kind of monitor this, and, and every dive we do is, is basically a scientific dive. We're collecting data. We don't throw it away. You know, we keep hold of it. And it's really, really okay. useful stuff. And we're noticing changes over three or four years. So you can imagine how big the changes are over, over decades, you know. So um, so it's really important really, for what we're doing. And we're quite hot on sort of getting on top of that in terms of our reporting systems and, and things like that, because this data is really, really valuable. Mm, and any idea how much fishing gear there is left in our UK waters? I know you retrieve tons of it yourself. I think of it was um, pulled up by the United Nations. Um, I'm not entirely sure what this was based on. Uh, I think it was a global figure. Um, but the global figure is estimated to be around 640,000 tonnes lost every year. Wow. Right. Uh, so in UK waters, what that is, I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but it's a lot. It's a lot. And it's more than we see. I think we only see a small snapshot 
because of the regularity of, of divers that are going diving, um, the depths that we dive to. Um, yeah, of course. A, a really good source of information, actually, is, is anglers. Um, anglers are, are lose hundreds and hundreds of pounds of fishing gear every time they yeah. go out. And they just they, wow. they just treat it as a, a, a thing that happens, you know, like losing loads of golf balls. You know, they just they just accept it. Um, and the reason they're losing it is because often these wrecks that they're fishing are covered in trawl net. And it's snagging on their fishing gear and they're losing it. So, you know, we speak to anglers and they're like, oh, I'm pretty sure this wreck is covered. But of course, the problem is um, anglers like to sort of fish in sort of 90 to 100 metres of water. <laughs> and we're, you know, <laughs> we're, we're within the limit. I think we, we need to pick the low hanging fruit first. Yeah, <laughs> um, yes, you know, so but, but yeah, every time they lose loads of gear on a site, you can pretty much guarantee that there's going to be a lot of net on it. So getting that data is, is really important in terms mm. of the amounts. We have a, a reporting system um, on the Ghost Fishing UK website, and we encourage mm. all scuba divers every time they go to just keep their eyes peeled for fishing nets, lines, and to come back and report it to us so that we can build this database around the UK of where this fishing net is. And of course, we use that, that data to, to set up trips to go and retrieve it. And on the note of setting up these trips to retrieve the nets, for those who are listening who want to get involved from the UK, how can they get involved? Have you got an avenue for divers and non-divers alike? Two avenues, if you like. Um, obviously, there's a diving avenue. Um, we've got quite a, a specific criteria if you're a diver. Okay. Um, you know, for example, we, we started out saying, yeah, anyone can join all the rest of it. But then we worked out that actually pulling up, you know, fishing nets um, with lift bags and all the rest of it is actually quite quite a dangerous task. Um, you need a certain skill set and experience to do that. Um, I wrote a training course in 2017, uh, which is the first in the world to, to teach divers how to recover ghost gear. It's three days long. Um, so if you, if you meet the criteria, you can you can register interest on our website as a diver. Make sure you meet the criteria. And then when we get around to running courses, which are all voluntary, uh, then, then we invite divers along to, to come, and, come and on those courses. So as a diver, you can definitely volunteer. If you're not quite up to scratch for taking the course, but you're still interested, you can definitely, definitely come on survey dives or report to us. You know, go diving. We want people to go diving as much as possible. Engage with us. Tell us where you saw these nets. Tell us, you know, what depth they were, what they were like. That's really important. If you're if you're not a diver, then we've got work that we'd love to give. <laughs> you know, anything, you know, designing posters to um, doing stuff for the website, maybe video editing if you're good at video editing. Um, we've got some great photographers and, and videographers. You know, we're very yeah. lucky, but you know, but they can't come on every trip, so. Uh, people who are good at writing press releases, stuff like that, because what happens is it always falls to the same people and, and, and they end up sort of overwhelmed, really, with the amount of stuff that we need to do. So so people who are good at proofreading articles or um, chucking things together into, into PDFs and tidying them up or fundraising. You know, we're, we're trying to build a fundraising team right now. We can't just leave it to one individual. We need to be putting out funding applications all the time. And it's really time consuming. And, and we all have real jobs, you know. So we're all doing sort of 10, 11 o'clock at night and we've got a bit of free time. And it's it's quite tough. So anybody who's able to help with even just small tasks um, like that um, are really, really, really helpful. And also people who've got sea legs. We're very happy for them to come out on a boat. Um, well, we've, we've got to the point now where we 
we will always want um, a member of, of our team topside on the on the boat because um, it's so important to have a have a crew member. You know, logging people in, logging yeah. people out, checking people's gas, handing them cameras. When you're trying to do that yourselves as divers, you you know sometimes things slide. Yeah. You know, you, you need you need a a, a, a boat mum really to make sure everyone's doing what they're doing yeah. and making them getting the right data, <laughs> got the risk assessments and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just to kind of keep everything coordinated. So if people do that kind of stuff, um, they're very welcome to come out on the boat with us and spend a day. And it's it's really satisfying seeing the nets coming yeah. up and and all that kind yeah. of stuff. Oh, wonderful stuff. So, so many ways to get involved and help out. And it sounds like great fun too and really satisfying, if I'm honest, especially because it's about protecting the marine life in our UK waters. And often people get disheartened about the lack of opportunity in this country. But this is a prime example of how you can play your part too. And you've got some really cool photos and videos of you retrieving nets on your social media with lift bags and huge amounts of equipment. So how can we follow your work? So we're on Twitter. We are on Facebook, which is where we hang out quite a lot. A lot of the information is, is on Facebook. Um, so that tends to sort of cover most bases. We're on Instagram. We've got a great Instagram feed. Um, and we're on LinkedIn. So, yeah, we're everywhere, basically. And we're on YouTube. We've got a great YouTube channel. Um, with say videos of, of what we do and images if you look at ghost fishing uk we've got a Flickr albums of some of our best pictures and, and there are some really really phenomenal photographs of, of what the charity does on that brilliant and actually i'll be signposting people towards the master cave documentary too a beautiful short film about the pioneering cave expedition in croatia so it's definitely one for our budding divers who are listening. And I think lastly, Christine, thank you so much for your insight into the world of cave diving, um, cave exploration and marine conservation in the UK. And hopefully we can have you back to give us an update. Sorry, we've been able to get out there. <laughs> you know, that's the, that's the only trouble. Yeah, it's really difficult to try and keep going um, during this crisis, but but that's what we've we've got to do. Really, that's what the public expect of us, and that's what we're doing. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's hope you can get back out to your expeditions pretty soon. Thanks again. You've listened to this wildlife podcast. Please do check us out on Instagram and Facebook by searching for this wildlife podcast you'll find loads of photos and links to our incredible guests and watch out for some awesome competitions coming up soon. Now, our main priority is to share the conservation stories that must be told. So we need your help to grow the wildlife family. So please do subscribe to the podcast. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, We'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review. Or if you're listening on another platform, such as Spotify, how about you share this podcast with a friend? From everyone at This Wildlife Podcast, thank you so much for your support. And remember, we're here to bring the wild to you.